Now, if you were here last week, uh, you may remember that we're in a little series in Philippians 1 at the moment. Um, if you weren't here with us last week, please do go to the church website and listen to it. Um, now, last time we saw how even though sometimes due to relational tensions and strains, church life can be really quite difficult. But nonetheless, we should and could persevere because we are being prayed for, because we should pray for others, and because we are being supernaturally persevered in the faith and in the life of the church by the Holy Spirit and for the glory of God. And this perseverance then takes the form of us as a group of people growing more and more in our love of God and of each other. This growth in love leads to better knowledge of ourselves and of God and of other people. And as knowledge grows, so does discernment. And that leads us to approve of things that are excellent, to lead a blameless and pure life for the glory of God. But I wonder, as you you think about perseverance, what do you think that looks like? I suspect that for most of us, We think of perseverance pretty much like we think of running a marathon. It's just hard work. You kind of grit your teeth, you get it done, and you get the reward at the end when it's all finished. The process of running the marathon isn't really something to be enjoyed unless you're a bit of a masochist. It's just something that you have to put up with in order to get the prize at the end, the the bragging rights at the end of it all. And so it is for perseverance of the faith. That that tends to be the way we think about it. It's just a hard slog so that we can get to the prize of eternal life and glory at the end. That doesn't sound like it's much fun, does it? It doesn't really sound like much cause to rejoice. Interestingly, however, I want you to look back at the passage from last week. And I want you to look at verse 4 in Philippians chapter 1. Verse 4. Always in every prayer of mine for you, or making my prayer with joy. Paul, in this letter, tells us that he prays with joy for the Philippian church. And what does he root this joy in? Well, we can see there in verse 7. It is right for me to feel this way about you all, because I hold you in my heart, because because you are all partakers with me of grace, both in imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. In other words, Paul prays for them with joy because they are his co-workers in proclaiming the gospel. He's rejoicing, in other words, because Christ is proclaimed. That is the source of his joyful prayer. And in our passage tonight, we are going to see all of that fleshed out a little bit more. Paul, in this passage, shows us three sets of circumstances in which we can rejoice because Christ is proclaimed. So firstly, then, we're going to see that we can rejoice when Christ is proclaimed, even in adversity. And secondly, we can rejoice even when Christ is proclaimed, out of selfish ambition. And thirdly, we can rejoice when Christ is proclaimed in love and affection. So firstly then, 
We can rejoice because Christ is proclaimed even in adversity. Now, it's possible to take quite a bleak view of the future of Christianity, isn't it? In the West, where it had typically been the stronghold of Christianity, we know, don't we, that the influence of Christianity is decreasing day by day, week by week. And recently it's got so bad that a public body instituted by the state was willing to spend a quarter of a million pounds of taxpayer money to go after a Christian bakery simply for refusing to make a cake with a message supporting gay marriage on it. The cake would have cost £36.50. And in all of that process, it cost the bakery £200,000 in legal fees. So in short... £450,000 was spent on this case. This is quite possibly the most expensive cake in the history of humanity that was never made. Now, please hear me when I say that I'm not commenting on whether the bakery should have baked the cake. I happen to agree with the ruling of the Supreme Court that the Ashes Bakery did not discriminate against the customer based on his sexuality, but simply found the message objectionable. And they were therefore entitled to refuse to put the message on cake. And if you disagree with me, that's fine. You know, let's talk about this afterwards. But the right and wrong of the case is not what I'm referring to here. The reason I'm referring to the case is simply to illustrate the extent to which Christian influence on Western society has decreased point where government institutions are actively trying to push Christians out of the public sphere if they disagree with the state's godless agenda. They're they're trying so hard to the point where almost half a million pounds can be spent on a court case for a cake that's worth less than 40. And if we were to look further afield, we're not faced with a much merrier picture, are we? Globally, Protestant Christianity seems to be growing each and every day. However, our brothers and sisters in Christ seem to be facing persecution everywhere. It was only months ago when China banned the public sales of Bibles. And even now, we fairly frequently hear of Chinese officials tearing down church buildings and imprisoning pastors. Christians in India are frequently harassed, sometimes even raped or killed by their Hindu and Muslim neighbors. And really, you don't even need me to tell you about the persecution of Christians in the Middle East and parts of Africa, do you? In fact, just last year, the European Parliament finally officially recognized Christians as the most persecuted religious minority in the world. Now, how are we to react when we're faced with this bleak picture of Christianity globally? Well, the first thing Paul tells us is that we should know about these things. See right there in verse 12? He wanted the Philippians to know about what has happened to him. And God wants us to know what is happening to our Christian brothers and sisters who are being persecuted and living in adversity. Now, it could well be that you are somebody who is very much in touch with uh, the news of the persecuted Christians, both here and abroad. Excellent. Carry on. And if you have a particular thought on how Christians can be better informed on these issues, please tell me, and you know, I'd I'd love to know, or drop me an email, I'd love to know more on how I can know more about Christians who are persecuted globally. 
If, however, you don't get regular updates on Christians persecuted worldwide, you know, some churches in the Free Church of Scotland have partnered with agencies like Release International or Open Doors. You know, maybe that's just somewhere you can start and hear more about Christians who are persecuted. And the thing is, as we learn about the situations of the persecuted Christians in the world, we're not supposed to learn about them in a disinterested kind of a way. They're not simply statistics. They're not just numbers on the page for us, like it might be for some government officials. We are supposed to weep for them, grieve for them, pray for them, and help them when we can. Just look at the very next word in verse 12. I want you to know, brothers. Brothers. Now, it's essential, I think, for us to start with pointing out that Paul doesn't mean that only the men in the congregation are supposed to know about the persecution of other Christians. It was simply a feature of Greek language. That brothers is a way of addressing all the Christians in the congregation. People at Philippi would simply have understood that. Um, But in our context, it could be made clearer. And so the NIV, perhaps more helpfully translated as brothers and sisters. All of us in the life of the church should seek to learn more about the Christians who are persecuted. And not only that, as we read about them, you know, perhaps watch YouTube videos about them, hear about them through various channels, We do not learn about them as if we are disinterested parties. But we are their family members. We are brothers and sisters to them. And as we know more and more of how our family members are suffering for the sake of Christ globally, would that not move us more and more to grieve for them and weep for them and pray for them and where we can help them? You know, the Philippian church themselves are a great example to us in this regard. If we just look back to verse 7, starting halfway through. I hold you in my heart, for you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. In other words, the Philippian church took such an intense interest in Paul That Paul says when he's suffering in prison, they it was as if they were partakers of the very same suffering. It pained them as much as it pained him when he was in prison. But it wasn't just emotional toil and empathy. If you turn with me a second to uh, chapter 4, verse 14. And here we read. Yet, yet it was kind of you to share my trouble. And you, Philippians, yourselves know that in the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving except you only. Even in Thessalonica, you sent me help for my needs once again. Not not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. I have received full payment and more. I am well supplied, having received from Epaphroditus the gift you sent, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. So what are the three things we're supposed to do in the face of worldwide persecution of Christians? Firstly, we need to know more about it. Secondly, we need to remember that we are brothers and sisters to those who are suffering. 
And thirdly, just as the Philippian church did, this care should spill out in weeping and grieving with them and where appropriate, giving generously to them. Now, none of this sounds particularly joyful yet, does it? In fact, I'm pretty sure that at least one of the reasons why Christians aren't more active in this area is because it's just so depressing. And it is emotionally exhausting to invest so much energy into a persecuted people. It's sometimes easier to just allow our ignorance to be bliss. And so we can just stay comfortable in our little world if we don't know anything about the things that are going on out there. You know, a couple of years ago, I saw an excellent film about persecuted Christians in 17th century Japan. And I cried for the majority of the film. Now, I'm not talking about a sort of single, solitary, manly tear. Um, no, no, I'm talking about full-on sobbing in the middle of the cinema. The whole experience was so emotionally intense that I simply couldn't even drive myself home. I managed to compose myself. And even now, though I know that it was a really excellent film, I just can't bring myself to watch it ever again. I just can't do it. And so, you know, if you're somebody who deliberately avoids these things because it's just so depressing, I completely understand. You know, I hear you. But the thing is, Paul tells us that we can rejoice even when we're faced with adversity and even when we sympathize and empathize with our brothers and sisters who are suffering for the faith. We can rejoice. But why is that? Verse 12. What has happened to him has actually helped to advance the gospel. Now, I want you to imagine yourself to be in the shoes of the Philippian church right now. We read earlier from Acts 16, didn't we? Which, which is basically the story of how the Philippian church came to be planted. We first heard about how the Spirit providentially guided them away from Asia, eventually to Macedonia and specifically Philippi. We hear about how Paul started preaching by the river and a God-fearing lady called Lydia hearing the gospel and becoming a Christian and her and her entire household. She then invited Paul and his fellow missionaries to go and stay at her home. We hear of how in the course of preaching, they encountered a slave girl whose owners earned a lot of money through her ability for fortune-telling. We hear of how in contrast to her slave owners who kept the slave girl for their own gains, Paul freed her of the evil spirit that lived in her. But this ultimately led to Paul and Silas being imprisoned because of false accusations from the slave girl's owners. We hear how they were horrifically mistreated and then thrown into jail. We hear of how Paul and Silas were able to rejoice even in the midst of their mistreatment and imprisonment. And they were praying and singing hymns to God. And even though an earthquake breaks open the jail, now now we're going to spend a little bit of time with the Philippian jailer. That This is where the scene switches to, to the Philippian jailer. You're the Philippian jailer. You've come to check on the prison after the earthquake to make sure everything's okay. 
And when you get there, you see all the prison doors open. And you're about to kill yourself because you thought all the prisoners had escaped. And you couldn't face the shame of that happening on your watch. And then you hear Paul cry out that none of the prisoners have escaped. Now, we have to ask the question why that might be. And the only, re- and the only thing that we can think of, it must be that as, as the fellow prisoners heard Paul and Silas singing hymns and praying to God, they were saved. And so even though they had a chance to escape, they decided to stay. They did the right thing to see out their sentences. And this so surprised the Philippian jailer, and he was so astonished by the whole thing that he asked Paul how it is that he could be saved. And Paul sits him down and his entire household. He explains the gospel to him. He tells them of how all of us are sinners in need of salvation from the wrath of God. He tells them of how God provided a way for us to be saved by sending his only son to come to earth as a lowly carpenter's son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And when Jesus had grown up, he began his ministry and he went preaching all over the land of Judea and Samaria. And with his disciples preaching about the kingdom of God, healing the sick, casting out demons and doing miracles that proved that he was indeed the son of God. Paul told them of how even though Jesus led a perfect life, people still plotted to kill him. And how at the last stage of his life, Jesus was abandoned by all his friends. Paul told them of how even though Jesus had lived a perfect sinless life, he was falsely condemned and he was executed on the cross as a common criminal. And in his death, he took the penalty we deserved for the sins that we have committed against God. And as we have faith in him, we are united to him. And so when God looks at us now, he no longer sees the sins that we've committed, but instead he sees the righteousness of his son, our Lord Jesus Christ. Paul tells them of how in that act, Jesus conquered death and he was risen from the grave. And again, if we are united to him through faith in him, he has conquered death for us. And we can look forward to an eternity in heaven with God. In short, Paul told them the good news, the best news, that each and every one of us, if we have faith in the Lord Jesus, we can be saved from our sins, the wrath of God and death. And when they heard this good news, the whole household of the Philippian jailer believed in the Lord Jesus. And they were baptized, each and every one of them. Now, imagine that you're a member of the Philippian church or the jailer's household or or even the jailer himself. Imagine that you are in church on Sunday and you're excited. You're excited because Paul, the person that brought you to faith, has written the church a letter and they're about to read it out. And you come to this bit of the letter. What would your reaction be? You would be thinking... Could it be that the same thing is going to happen in the prison that Paul is currently in as what had happened in Philippi? Just look at all the people that are hearing the good news, the best news of the Lord Jesus Christ's death and resurrection and the forgiveness of sins. Could it be that even now God is saving some of them? Surely this is a great reason to rejoice. 
And so as we consider suffering and persecution of our brothers and sisters in Christ, or maybe perhaps as we suffer for the cause of the gospel, we can remember that as Christians suffer and are persecuted for Jesus, the gospel goes out. And even now, people are being saved. And we can rejoice in that. Now, Paul's suffering didn't just bear witness for the gospel. It seemed to have had a galvanizing effect on the other Christians around them. Now, we can see that in verse 14. And most of the brothers, again, brothers and sisters, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. And so we come to our second point. Rejoice because Christ is proclaimed despite selfish ambitions. Now in our culture which loves comfort and which would do anything to avoid discomfort, it's actually very difficult for us to understand why seeing a brother and sister in the Lord persecuted and suffering for their faith would make you more bold to speak the faith without fear. For most of us, when we hear about persecuted Christians, whether here or abroad, we may be quite happy to show care um, in the situation. We may want to learn more about it. We may grieve or even weep for them. We may even be quite happy to give practical assistance where we're able. But I suspect relatively few of us would volunteer to risk going through the same things as our brothers and sisters. So why does Paul talk about this imprisonment and boldening, not just some of the other Christians, but most of the other Christians to become bolder in proclaiming the word? Well, we're going to see two reasons in the text today. One is a good motivation and one is a bad motivation. But regardless, because Christ is proclaimed in both situations, we are supposed to rejoice. Firstly, then, the bad motivation. Now, you've you've probably already spotted it. It, it, it's not it's, it's not hidden in the text at all, is it? See there in verse 15? Some preach Christ out of envy and rivalry. And these people in verse 17 preach out of selfish ambition. They're not sincere so that they can afflict Paul in his imprisonment. In other words then, they're not really bold. They preach as if they are bold. But in reality, they're preaching out of unworthy motivations that serves only to magnify themselves rather than to risk persecution. So, this is where we're going to see why we should rejoice because Christ is proclaimed by selfish ambitions. Now, we can't possibly reconstruct exactly what was going on in the minds of these people who are preaching Christ out of selfish ambitions. Neither should we try. I mean, Paul here quite deliberately doesn't tell us the exact ways in which they try to afflict him in his imprisonment. Now, if Paul isn't telling us the precise details of what was going on, it means that he doesn't want us to know. And the main lesson here appears to be that we should rejoice that the gospel is preached, even when it's being preached out of selfish ambition. So, and I think this is quite helpful in our context to help us think through the ways in which we interact with other Christians. Now, quite apart from living in an age which loves comfort, we also live in an age of suspicion, don't we? Authenticity has been elevated to, to effectively be the highest virtue of a human being. We hear this kind of thing all the time, don't we? It doesn't matter who you are. 
as long as you are being yourself. And, you know, there are good impulses associated with this move. You know, as Christians, we certainly should love truth. But at the same time, we're told that we should love one another and be merciful and gracious to one another. So actually, we shouldn't try to import this attitude of suspicion into the life of the church. We should be wise, but we shouldn't want to be suspicious. But actually, we see this suspicious attitude towards other Christians in the life of the church all the time, don't we? You know, I know of a church where a few years ago, the church had grown to a fair size with quite a large number of mature Christians in the congregation. And as they were looking to plant a church somewhere else in the city, um, you know, the, the pastor himself offered to go with it. Now, the church was a sort of fairly traditional church in feel and culture. And it wasn't exactly a secret that the pastor was frustrated with that and wanted to introduce a band into the Sunday worship. Now, you know, We'd all have different opinions on that, and that's fine. But the frustration of the pastor was known to the congregation and to his leadership team. And when the opportunity for the church plant arose, when the pastor offered to be the one to lead the church plant, whilst leaving the main congregation in the hands of the assistants and the rest of his leadership team, it just went crazy. Now, just to make it clear, the majority of the church had no reason to doubt the motivation and the integrity of the pastor. But crucially, a couple of members of his leadership team did. And they basically accused the pastor of only wanting to plant a church because he wanted to take a group of people so that he can have a church more to his own personal taste. And that caused a massive storm in the life of the church. And almost 10 years on, the church is still feeling the effects of those accusations. Now, in light of Paul's teaching here about rejoicing, even if the gospel is being preached out of rivalry and envy and selfish ambitions, what do you think would have been Paul's response if he was on the eldership team or a member of the congregation in that situation? What do you think would have been the biblical, godly response? I put it to you that even if we were to assume the absolute worst about the pastor's intention, By the way, I don't think we should. And even if we were to assume the worst about the pastor's intention, and he did just want to start a church so that he can introduce a band into Sunday worship, even if all that was true, how do you think Paul would have reacted? Well, I put it to you that his response would have been, you want to go to a part of the city where there are no churches? You want to preach the good news of Jesus' death and resurrection to people who otherwise would not have heard? You want to share the eternal hope that people can have if they come to faith in Jesus to the people who have never heard that news before? Great! Go. Go with our blessing. Go with whatever bit of support we can muster up for you. Go and tell people about the good news of Jesus. The godly response to people wanting to preach the gospel, even when you may suspect them of wanting to preach out of selfish ambition, rivalry, and envy, is to rejoice because the gospel is being preached. Now, please hear me when I say this, and and please hear me carefully when I say this. This does not mean that it's a get-out-of-jail-free card for people who are preaching out of selfish ambition, rivalry, and envy. If you just flick ahead to a few more verses, to chapter 2, verse 3, Paul clearly tells the Philippians to do nothing out of selfish ambition. The exact same word here. So clearly it is wrong 
to do things, especially something as solemn and as important as preaching, to do so out of selfish ambition. And make no mistake, those of us who do are answerable to God in the final judgment. And if this is you, you need to repent of this. But for onlookers, our job is not to do God's work of judgment, but rather to rejoice because the gospel is being preached. And perhaps you're not a Christian tonight. Perhaps, though you're not suspicious of your friend or family who has brought you to church, but maybe you're kind of suspicious of the guy up front. I mean, after all, what does he get out of doing this? So, first of all, I just want to say to you, I I completely understand your uh, suspicion. And given the opportunity and time, I would hope to convince you otherwise. But even if you are extremely suspicious of my motivations for preaching the gospel to you, can I just ask that rather than spending all your mental energy on being suspicious of me or Andy or any of the people that comes into this pulpit, rather than spending all your energy on being suspicious, spend some of that mental energy in considering the content of what you're being told. I want you to know that you, like all of us, have done things that you shouldn't have done, not done things that you should have done. And if you think otherwise, quite frankly, you've just lied to yourself. And surely we can agree that lying isn't a good thing. Now, the, the things, the wrong things that you've done, or the fact that you've neglected to do the right things, now, in biblical terms, that's called sin. And as somebody who has sinned, it means that you're a sinner. And if you were to stand before God's judgment now, well, first of all, you wouldn't be damned. And so how must you be saved? You're saved in just the same way as the Philippian jailer, by having faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, his death and resurrection, and that through having faith in him, the judgment that you deserve has already fallen on him. And not only that, through having faith in him, you are united to him so that when God looks at you, he sees Jesus' righteousness rather than your sinfulness. And in this way, you can have a right relationship with God. Now, genuinely, I can look into my heart and say that I'm not preaching this out of selfish ambition or envy or rivalry. I preach this to you because I love you. And like Paul, I want to see everyone saved. But even if you are suspicious of my motives, please take a realistic view of your life and actions and the ways in which you stand before God and consider what has been said seriously. Now, having seen how we can rejoice even when Christians are facing persecution, because ultimately it means the spread of the gospel, And how in light of this, our responsibility is to seek to know more about it, not just as disinterested observers, but as brothers and sisters to those who are suffering. And that means weeping and grieving and providing physical help when we can. And all of this leading us to be emboldened to preach the gospel. And sometimes, as we've seen, this can be done out of bad motives like ambition, envy, and rivalry. But ultimately, we can rejoice in both of these circumstances, because the gospel is being preached. So far then, we have seen how we can and should rejoice, even when the gospel is preached, 
in case of adversity, and even when it's preached out of selfish ambition. And so now we're on to our third point. Rejoice. The gospel is being proclaimed out of affection and love. You know, that's, that's really clear, again, isn't it, from our, clear, from our text today, isn't it? From verses 15 to 16. It's true that some preach Christ out of envy and rivalry, but others out of goodwill. The latter do so out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. Now, there's a sense in which this last point should be plainly obvious for all to see. If we're to rejoice in all situations in which the gospel is preached, even in adversity and even out of selfish ambition, surely then it just makes logical sense that we would rejoice when it's preached out of love and affection. There is, however, a bit of an interesting feature of this joy in this verse, and and I wonder if you've seen it. Usually when we think about love as the motivation, we think of love for God and love for the people we're preaching to, don't we? And here, and yet here, what does Paul say? It is love for him, love for him that emboldens these brothers and sisters to preach the gospel. In other words, it is out of the love of the persecuted Christians that emboldened the Christians to preach the gospel fearlessly. What's going on there? Well, let's look carefully at verse 16. These people are preaching out of love for Paul, recognizing that Paul had been put there for the defense of the gospel. In other words, this is true boldness. This is a boldness that means that even though they have just seen somebody in prison for preaching the gospel, they, out of a desire to show solidarity with Paul, wanting to show him that they too believe that the message of the gospel is such good news to the world, that they're willing to to be imprisoned, and perhaps even to risk their lives to share the good news with those around them. We can rejoice when we see this kind of boldness, Because it is a boldness that springs from pure love for the persecuted Christian. And that enables them to risk losing everything to continue the work of preaching the gospel. What an amazing witness to the importance of the good news of Jesus. As we conclude then, we finish with this. Rejoice when the gospel is proclaimed. Even when it's proclaimed in hard circumstances perhaps even terrible circumstances, when Christians face persecution, we must rejoice. Not because we rejoice in the hardship, but because we know it's worth it. We can rejoice even when the gospel is preached out of unworthy and bad motives like selfish ambition, because the gospel is mighty to save, even when the preacher might have mixed motives. And finally, we can rejoice, especially when the gospel is preached in love for the persecuted brother or sister, because it shows us the true importance of the gospel, that people are willing to risk everything to share it with other people. And all to the glory of God. And so we sing 